0: you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think.
1: Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello, my name is Justin Hamilton and welcome to Season 2 of Big Squid. you listen to Season 1 of this podcast, welcome back. I appreciate you returning to hang out with me for this new season. And if this is your first listen, then thanks for joining our community. We're a pretty tight bunch of people from all over the world who bonded over the Watchmen HBO series and the original graphic novel. So if you haven't checked out any of Watchmen, I would not only recommend uh, both the graphic novel and the series, but I also suggest you give Season 1 of this podcast a listen to help guide you through... The whole experience. And uh, if you like your shit nerdy, that is a very nerdy podcast. Uh, I produce that with uh, a few friends from all over the country, uh, but this one will be a little bit different. This one I'll be flying solo as I celebrate the last David Bowie album, Black Star. Over the course of the next seven episodes, I'll focus on each track and review the myriad meanings in the lyrics, the inspiration behind the music, and intersperse it with my history of being a Bowie fan, which stretches back to the pastel-drenched 80s when I attended his Serious Moonlight tour. I have to stress, I'm under no illusion that this is a definitive take. Uh, Bowie fans out there might have different opinions on this, they might have different interpretations, so uh, I don't want to pretend that this is the last word on it. I think all great art contains multitudes of layers and meaning, so while I'll reveal my thoughts on what the album represents, that doesn't mean it will be the same for you. So, this season isn't designed to tell you what to think. That's what I'm trying to say here. This is a conversation starter. I want to hear your opinions. And if you have ideas and thoughts that are contradictory and you'd like to share with me and other fans of this podcast, what you can do is you can head over to the Big Squid with Justin Hamilton Facebook page. Drop me some lines there and uh, I'll keep an eye on everything. And if you're not on Facebook and All the power to you, if you're not, I'll be blogging over at my site, justinhamilton.com.au, and you can pass your comments to me over there. One of the many reasons I love David Bowie is that he remained a fan of high and low art throughout his career. Through his fandom, I discovered other artists from Iggy Pop and Lou Reed to William Burroughs and Alexander McQueen to Suede and Placebo, all the way up to Kendrick Lamar. And some of these artists at the time, I hadn't heard of them, like especially when I was younger, I'd never heard of uh, Lou Reed or The Velvet Underground so that was the first time I came into contact with them. Some of these other artists I'd heard of them and maybe listened to or or looked at their work, but maybe in more, in a more cursory way. So what I did was uh I used David Bowie as a conduit to all of these people and and became fans of some of them. Uh some of them I didn't. Like, you know, I I know there's a, a lot of work fans out there and I haven't I haven't cracked that nut over the years. I've listened to it, I can, I can hear the influence, but I haven't cracked the nut as a, as, a, as a fan. If I ever do, I'll do a podcast called Crack the Nut, and that'll be all about how I finally came around to craft work. But uh, anyway, David Bowie was a conduit to those artists, and I hope this podcast might introduce you to some new ideas, uh, some fresh thoughts, and maybe some other artists as well. Uh, As a Bowie acolyte, I firmly believe in reinvention, so this podcast will be a little bit different from the first season. But don't fret. There'll be some of your favourite segments, including Squid Bits, I Spend Too Much Time Alone, and Going Full Horseshoe. I feel like the whole podcast, Podcast could be just squid bits for what what goes into this. But anyway, I, I hope you would enjoy not only this podcast, but also the brilliance of David Bowie's Black Star. This is, this is not a sad podcast. This is a celebration of a man creating art right up until the very end of his life. And uh, I, I think we're in for a fun time. So look, what I want you to do is kick off your red shoes we're not going to dance the blues, you're going to leave them by the door, because it's time we entered the Villa of Ormond. The first time I heard Black Star was in conjunction with the film clip, so it's really difficult for me to think of one without the other. I'd heard a little snippet of the song that was being used in the opening credits for the TV show The Last Panthers, but I have to be honest and say that snippet didn't really prepare me for the onslaught of music and images that were contained in the video. And, I have to be honest, it was a lot to take in, like a lot, and I loved it. So let's refresh what happens in the film clip before we go any further. Opening with a dead astronaut abandoned under a black star, we watch as a woman with a tail removes the bejeweled skull from the helmet and returns to a village with the prize. There we see a group of women perform a ritual with a high priestess where they call forth a Lovecraftian monster that is a cross between the moon child from Grant Morrison's The Invisibles and one of Jim Henson's creations for Labyrinth. Meanwhile, three scarecrows writhe and undulate, crucified in a field. This story is intercut with three new Bowie characters. There's Button Eyes, a bandaged wraith that looks like he's escaped from Neil Gaiman's Coraline. There's the pagan preacher who holds his tattered copy of a book emblazoned with a black star on the cover. The preacher says nothing, but blows almost imperceptibly on the book, filling the pages with his breath and his spirit. Finally, there's Bowie the trickster, looking like an aged Loki, trapped in an attic and making promises that you feel you shouldn't completely trust. We see dancers jiggling as if they can't completely download from a higher dimension into this world. We watch the skeleton of the astronaut float towards the black star, its skull left behind for the women's ritual. We finished with the summon creature's attack on the scarecrows as Button Eyes folds in on himself, and suddenly, just like that, the song is over. My first reaction was that this clip was another masterpiece. In some places, it made me feel kind of uneasy, and at other times, I thought it was quite funny. I think Bowie's sense of humour was always his secret weapon, hiding just beneath the surface, and often missed by critics who wanted to deem him pretentious or reaching too far. There was often a dismissing of Bowie's career when he would try a new sound or look, especially as he got older. It's almost like you're supposed to hit a point in your creative process where you just stay in your lane and never venture out. Bowie's clips often struck a chord with me, even before I could say I was a proper fan. I remember when I was eight years old, finding the film clip for Ashes to Ashes beguiling and scary. Every time it came up on Countdown and... Just a little aside for our overseas listeners, uh, Countdown was this incredibly influential and important music show in Australian TV history. So every time the clip would come up on Countdown, I would debate whether I wanted to watch the film clip or not, because it would just make me feel a bit out of sorts. And every time I'd I'd watch it, regardless of the strange dreams, that would fill my head then uh, that night. Uh, Ashes to Ashes was unlike anything I'd heard or seen before, and the clown that appeared trapped on that apocalyptic beach suggested a world I never realised existed. I was obsessed with the four apostles to the clown. I wondered why the flash of the camera hurt the clown. What was the significance of the blue patch on the chair in the asylum at first sitting in the middle of the chair and then later down on one side? Most importantly... Who was the astronaut attached by tubes to the inside of that alien cave, unfeeling yet still alive? It gave me goosebumps as a little fella, and the Black Star film clip brought back that same type of feeling 35 years later. As the vision of Black Star melted into my brain and the music began to settle, I I then turned to the lyrics. One of the great aspects of Bowie is that in many ways his writing can be meaningless, it can be nonsense and that isn't a criticism often there's a mood to bowie's music and lyrics that were straightforward would have ruined that mood it would have it would have taken away from the narrative If you go back uh, as far as Diamond Dogs, when Bowie really began experimenting with the Burroughs cut-up technique, uh, if you don't know what that is, uh, it it wasn't originated by William Burroughs, but he kind of made it popular, where you you take uh, a written text and you cut it up and you rearrange it to form a new text. And in the process, you find things that maybe were there subconsciously or you find a new narrative. So back around Diamond Dogs... Bowie started really working in the Burroughs cut-up technique on a regular basis. And therefore, sometimes when you listen closely, his lyrics kind of defy narrative sense. So let me play a little bit of Diamond Dogs for you to give you an example. Okay, great song, but you listen and you think, hang on, what did Mother used to bake? A darley brooch? Is that a brooch that melts? Was she on acid when she was baking said brooch? Also, what's a ghost town approach? Is that me talking to people as if I'm Edith in a Dan Klaus comic? I have no idea what is going on in this song. It's a great song. It definitely sets a mood for that album. But once you start to dig into it, it's a bit like, uh, I'm not quite certain what's happening here. Uh, Let's have another example. Let's uh, check out one of my favourite Bowie songs. It's from 1995's Outside album, and it's the song that opens and closes the David Lynch masterpiece, Lost Highway. And this song's called, I'm Deranged. I fucking love this song more than most of my friends, but I have no idea what that means. The words fuse with the music to create not just a drama, but a psychodrama with a jungle-infused rhythm. I did a little bit of research, and Bowie claimed that the song was inspired by an inmate in a psychiatric institution on the outskirts of Vienna called the Guggen Clinic. This is where patients were given the opportunity to produce art for diagnostic purposes, and it turned out some of the inmates had real talent. The art produced there was known as outsider art. It was one inmate in particular who, when talking to Bowie, referred to himself as the Angel Man and said, I was exactly who I was up until the 5th of February, 1948. And then I became an angel, just after lunch. As I've always said, never become something angelic on an empty stomach. I guess you can hear that song and you hear that explanation and completely understand why David Lynch thinks, well, this song should open and close Lost Highway. So as you can see, Bowie's use of writing meaningless lyrics evokes particular moods, and this in turn encourages his fans to engage and find their own meaning in each song. So I I guess I could talk to some Super Bowie fans and they could tell me completely different interpretations of I'm Deranged to what I take out of it. So, I find that fascinating. And then if you couple it with a quote from Bowie in 1987, when he declared that he loved fabricating mock mythologies, from the moment the music begins on Blackstar and he sings in the villa of Ormond, we are carried away to a place that doesn't exist, but we can immediately picture in our minds. And I reckon what we probably picture, once again, is always slightly different, depending on the individual. The director, Johan Rank said that he and Bowie agreed that the film clip should be left to interpretation, but he did state later that he believed the astronaut was 100% Major Tom. Bowie requested the woman to have a tail because he not only thought it looked sexual, but back in 2015 he was witnessing society evolve, that the idea of gender was changing, and wanted this tailed woman to represent that change. So the man who helped usher in the idea of gender bending in the 70s and who stated in Hello Space Boy, Do You Like Girls or Boys? It's confusing these days. Once again had his finger on the pulse of sexuality and the revolution taking place in the 21st century. American jazz saxophonist Donnie McCaslin and his band played on the album and keyboardist Jason Lindner revealed that "Black Star" was conceived as a two-part suite rather than two different songs with a free-form middle part. Assistant engineer Aaron Tonkin said that they looked at Blackstar sonically as a film. And originally the song had an extra minute in length, but iTunes wouldn't allow the song to be purchased if it was over 10 minutes, so they had to edit it down to 9.57. Why? I don't really know. Another reason to be angry at Apple for the monopoly on art, if you want to take it there. But that seems bizarre to me. I don't know why that would be so. If anyone knows, please let me know. But it seems, I don't know, just just seems like a bit of a pain in the ass. The way the three dancers jiggle away in the background was Bowie's idea. It was inspired by the Max Fleischer cartoons from the 30s. Specifically the ones that starred Popeye the Sailor Man. Animators would place marginal characters in the background in loops of motion, and this is what the dancers are emulating in the clip. As I said earlier, it is like seeing beings from a higher dimension being downloaded into our world, but somehow it hasn't quite worked properly. They're convulsing bodies attempting to fill gaps of information to make them whole in this new place. After a few listens and views, Blackstar to me felt like a spiritual successor to one of my favourite Bowie songs, Station to Station, a song that fascinated me since I was about 11 years old. You see, when I was a young kid, I was really into Kiss. I was five years old, read comics, and Kiss looked like superheroes. Their music was catchy, their clips perfunctory, and their stage antics included rising stages and fake blood and guitars that shot rockets out of them. So when you're a kid, what is there not to love? My first ever concert was seeing KISS. Mum took me to see them at the age of 8 at Adelaide Oval in 1980, and it was great. I loved it. Had a really good time. Then, by 1983, KISS released an album called Lick It Up, where they weren't wearing makeup, and the songs weren't quite as good, and the spell was broken. Now, they just kind of look like four weird-looking dudes making music. And for me, taking off the makeup, like, fuck, what are you doing? Like, I I don't read a Spider-Man comic to see the adventures of Peter Parker. I read Spider-Man comics to see my favourite, Web Slinger. My love affair with Kiss was over by the age of 10. Ah, the first heartbreak. We remember it, don't we? That was around the same age when Mum suggested that maybe I'd like to see David Bowie live. Now, I knew David Bowie, but I was a bit confused. He was the guy who kind of scared me and fascinated me in Ashes to Ashes, but he was also the alien-looking dude in the Space Oddity film clip, but he was also suddenly the tan, blonde-haired guy in the Let's Dance film clip. So what 's going on with this guy? Is he the same person do Do different people take on the persona of David Bowie? like what is happening here? Mum told me that uh, he liked to change his look and change his sounds, and she just thought that he would be in my wheelhouse and If I wanted to go, I had to let her know now because the tickets were super expensive. They were twenty dollars, and back in the day, twenty dollars could buy you you know a pie, a sausage roll an iced coffee, a little cake, and probably a three-bedroom house out in the eastern suburbs of Adelaide. But Mum and I, we it was just the two of us. We didn't have a lot of money. Uh, we were probably just under the poverty line as a family. Uh, we lived comfortably because Mum was good with cash, but it was only her bringing in a wage. So $20 was like a, a big deal, and, and she would have had to get a ticket for herself as well, right? So... I was intrigued, I said yes, and that I was keen to go. And so on the 9th of November, 1983, Mum and I went to Adelaide Oval, and I can honestly say nothing was ever the same for me again. When he first came onto the stage, it was to the song Look Back in Anger, and he sang the first verse with his back to the audience. And people were screaming around me already. They were losing their minds. And I'd I'd never been in, in this kind of situation before. And when he spun about, to sing the first line in the chorus. The lights on the ta- on the stage exploded and people who were already screaming with delight roared even louder. And on the night, the songs I knew the best were my favourites. So, obvious things like uh, Let's Dance, Modern Love, Ashes to Ashes, Space Oddity. But two songs hit me in a way I'd never experienced. One was Life on Mars, which we'll talk about in a later podcast. And the second song pertinent to this podcast was Station to Station. I'd never heard anything like it before. It was long, it appeared to be made up of different parts, and it had imagery that blew my mind as I grappled to understand just what could this all mean. As an example, just listen to the opening line. Holy shit, the thin white duke throwing darts in lover's eyes? That's a hell of an opening line. And I was so entranced by the lyrics. It was one of the first times I'd done any sort of deep dive. Like, I didn't even know the term deep dive. I was, I was just desperate to understand what was going on with this song. And, and back then, you didn't have the internet. So I had to go and find lyric sheets. I had to go and find books. I had to find magazine articles to help explain just what this song was all about. And that concert opened my eyes up to a world that felt far away, but at the same time, kind of accessible. I bought all the albums that I could get my hands on, and of course, the early glam rock period to begin with was by far my favourite, Ziggy Stardust, Aladdin Sane. It was the music that made the most sense to me at that age. But over time, once I finally got my hands on the album Station to Station, I kept returning to that song, and once again, I had to do all of this research through books and magazines, etc. And I I was reading about the, the lyrics and what they meant. I read about the Stations of the Cross, which represent the 14 landmarks that Jesus had to pass to make his way to the crucifixion. Uh, reading about the song also inspired me to read into the Kabbalah and the Ten Spheres of Creation. I also discovered how Bowie was strung out on this mythical la lifestyle while recording that album and in many ways this album was a cry for help this song is a cry for help and later looking back on it bowie said he doesn't really remember recording it and when he listens to it he finds some of it beautiful but he finds a bit of it difficult to to hear and he and he's he he remarked it was an incredibly dark album the closest to a magic treatise that he'd written it certainly was a work of alchemy for me. It was the first time that I contemplated as a young kid that great art could come from the darkest of places and in the process, possibly save you as well. And when I heard Blackstar for the first time, while watching that film clip with jewel-encrusted skulls and women with tails and creatures summoned from the deepest abyss of our subconscious, I immediately thought of Station to Station And I wondered why he would produce this particular song at this time in his life. Before we get into what this song could possibly be about, let's get into the Squid Bits section of the podcast. Here, I'm going to dig into the lyrics, see what they represent or could possibly allude to. Some of these lyrics uh, will have double meanings, and I reckon we'll find some stuff that's on the money. And there'll be other parts where... Maybe we're way off base. Maybe it's, it's complete baloney. But either way, we'll have fun and see what we find. So let's start with the title, Black Star, which is obviously important since it gives us not only the name of the first song, but is also the name of the album and gives us a symbology that we see all around us even today. Like sometimes I see that very specific styled star and wonder if it is a Bowie product or just a coincidence. But therein lays a lot of the power of that image, that you can see it and immediately think of the great man. By the way, uh, just as a little aside, I had two double-sided pages of notes on the title alone. So (laughs) I felt like this this part of the podcast could have been a nine-part section all on its own. So what I've done is I've whittled it down to the ones that I feel are either the most pertinent or the most fun. So let's get into the meaning of Black Star. One possible meaning is a black star is a star that has died and is incapable of giving off light, yet still has mass, which means it still has gravity. It is also described as a transitional phase between a star and a singularity. And now a singularity is a location in space-time where a gravitational field of a celestial body is predicted to become infinite. So I guess we could be saying that with this song and with his death, he's changing from one thing into another, but in that process there is the sense that it could go on for a long time. Uh, a black star is also a type of cancerous lesion, generally benign, precancerous. Uh, this was one of the first uh, ideas and thoughts that started being passed around as soon as people knew about his death. They started looking back and wondering if he was telling us something very specifically with that title that related to something that he was also keeping incredibly private. In the TV series Peaky Blinders, Series 1, Episode 5, which came out in 2013, gangster Tommy Shelby plans a Black Star Day where he'll eliminate his rival. So, Bowie uh, was a big fan of the TV show and also a big fan of Killian Murphy, and they struck up a friendship. And he presented Bowie with the cap that he wears in the TV show. So maybe there's a little shout.
0: Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you.
1: Bowie was uh, a big fan of Moz Def, uh, and that's also the name of uh, his hip-hop group. Uh, In 1981, there was a short-lived cartoon uh, where an astronaut called John Blackstar enters another universe via a black hole and goes on to become a champion of the oppressed in that new universe. Now, we know David Bowie enjoyed his children's shows. Uh, Case in point, go back to the album Heathen and listen to the melancholy of his song Slip Away. So maybe this was a cartoon he saw with his son at the time. The Unicode black star character is U 2605 Now, a Unicode is the code point assigned for numbers, mathematical notation, popular symbols, and characters from all languages. So why do we have Unicode? For a computer to be able to store text and numbers that humans can understand, there needs to be a code that transforms characters into numbers, and that is necessary so every device can display the same information. So the black star symbol has a unicode of U plus 2605. And why is that interesting? Because Bowie's friend and former spider from Mars, Mick Ronson, the most important musician in the glam rock period of Bowie's life, his birthday was the 26th of May. Or, if you were writing it down as numbers, 2605. Mick Ronson also died of liver cancer, which of course is the same thing that took David Bowie's life. Here's some dumb just throwaways for you. Blackstar also came up as a name for a Greek anarchist terrorist group active around the turn of the 21st century. There are novels by Josh Viola, Johnston McCulley and Morton Cooper. It's a Star Trek reference. And there are other songs with Blackstar in the title by not only Radiohead, but also Avril Lavigne. Maybe Bowie was just a big Lavigne fan. Big shout out on the way out to Avril. There was also another song that had Black Star in the title, and it was an unreleased song by Elvis Presley. Bowie, of course, shared a birthday with Elvis, and as a big fan of Elvis, felt they must have a bond since they shared a birthday. Uh, the Elvis song was for the 1960 Western Flaming Star, which was originally entitled Blackstar. The song was scrapped when the movie title was changed. But the song opens with these words. Every man has a black star, a black star over his shoulder. And when a man sees his black star, he knows his time, his time has come. It is essentially a song about a cowboy who sees death coming for him, and he does what he can to keep ahead of it, because there's more life to live. Before we get into the next part of the lyric, uh, just another little sidebar, Uh, that date that uh, Bowie and Elvis Presley share uh, as a birthday. Uh, That's also the day that the character Roy Batty is brought to life in the movie Blade Runner. That was one of Bowie's favourite movies. Uh, He was uh, in the movie brought to life uh, on January 8th, 2016 which was Bowie's last last birthday. Uh, and uh, Bowie loved that movie to such an extent that he paraphrased Roy's final words in the movie for a speech read out at his brother's funeral. But let's move on to what the fuck could be the Villa of Ormond. There's potentially a lot going on with that opening line in the song, including some Things around it. It was uh, the name of a Tumblr site that is no longer available, but you can find screen grabs on certain Reddit threads if you go looking. And on the site, there were pictures posted around November 2015 that included an image of a female figure half in a wardrobe. She's leaving the wardrobe on the right. And if you've seen the Lazarus film clip, we see Bowie ending the song by entering the left side of the wardrobe. Lots of interesting images there. We'll discuss more of that in episode three of this season. But getting to Ormond. Ormond is a Norwegian word meaning serpent. Now, serpents carry a special significance in many religions and cultures. Sometimes they can represent protection as they do on the double crown of the Egyptian pharaohs. They have also been a symbol of immortality as witnessed in the Sumerian epic of Gilgamesh. Of course, in Christian mythology, the serpent is crafty and persuasive in the Garden of Eden. So, the serpent can be revered and reviled. It can be an emblem of life or the devil himself. A serpent, or a snake as it were, is a symbol of rebirth because of their ability to shed their skin. Bowie was also fascinated with the works of Alistair Crowley, the British occultist who declared that the serpent, Satan wasn't the enemy of man, but in fact was the one who provided us with knowledge of good and evil, and therefore gave us the opportunity to know who we are so we could achieve greatness. Crowley has turned up in the lyrics of Bowie songs as far back as 1971's Quicksand, and the line in Black Star, at the centre of it all, reflects lines from Crowley's ritual, The Star Sapphire which we'll once again go into more in Episode 3 of this season. Norway holds special significance for Bowie. He broke up with his girlfriend Hermione Farthingale in 1969 when she travelled to Norway to appear in the movie Song of Norway. This moment had a huge impact on Bowie, which can be found in the song Letter to Hermione on the Space Oddity album, and she was also the inspiration for the girl with the mousy hair in his masterpiece Life on Mars. Bowie also referenced her in recent times by wearing a t-shirt in his comeback hit Where Are We Now that had the word Song for Norway emblazoned across the chest. If we go further down this rabbit hole, the movie Song for Norway was written by a Milton Lazarus. Lazarus, of course, being the third song on this album and the title of his final play. Ormond turns up as part of the name of a fearfully famous 10th century Viking longship called the Ormond Lang. In the sagas, Norwegian king Olaf Tryggvason. ...took it upon himself to convert his countrymen to Christianity. One local ruler, Ran the Strong, not only refused to convert, but cursed the name of Jesus. Olaf took this well. And what I mean by well is, I mean he forced uh, a serpent down Rand's throat... ...and then the serpent ate its way out of his torso. Hopefully Ran wasn't a vegan, or this would have been doubly upsetting. Anyway... Olaf then decided to take Rand's ship, and I can't think of anyone wanting to tell him no after what just happened with the serpent stuffing. Uh, He he took the ship, renamed it Ormond, and then used this ship as a model for his new ship, the Ormond Lung. Finally, the line, the villa of Ormond has a number of people online uh, revealing that they, when they first heard the song, thought uh, he was singing the reveal of all men, which could be a metaphor for death. Or... Maybe uh, it's just a cool way of saying uh, guys like putting out dick pics. <laughs> Who knows? But it's funny that that seems to have been a, uh, a a consensus on what people had misheard when they first came across this song. Uh, the Solitary Candle. This feels like it has been inspired by Shakespeare's Out, Out Brief Candle where the candle represents human life. A candle burns brightly and then eventually the flame is extinguished and this tells us that life is, in the context of eternity, extremely brief and regardless of what light it illuminates in that short time, potentially inconsequential. This is probably also a part of the inspiration for the line Tyrell says in Blade Runner to Roy Batty. The light that burns twice as bright burns half as long. And you have burned so very, very brightly, Roy. So interesting that uh, we can maybe find some uh, connection through uh, different types of art, movies, Shakespeare. Uh, the metaphor all kind of comes together. Uh, he sings, uh, The spirit rose a meter then stepped aside and, uh, Around these lyrics, we hear that the man has died, and when his spirit leaves him, someone takes the place, but only after he has decided to move on. Throughout this next part of the song, his followers sing for the preacher as he tells us over and over what he's not and what he is. He's not a gangster or a pop star or a Marvel star. He's a black star. I have some thoughts on this. We'll get uh, to that uh, a little bit later on. Uh, but for the moment, I, I want to go full horseshoe on you. Now, for our for our new listeners, going full horseshoe is uh, a reference to our first season where I found something in the TV series Watchmen that uh, I really dug into that my friends thought maybe was slightly insane, and then it turned out I was onto something. So it doesn't mean I'm always right. It just means that I'm going to really dig into something here and either bring out a fact that is super interesting uh, and that we are completely right or or full-blown evidence that I literally have not seen any of my friends in person in Just under six weeks. (laughs) I feel like this whole season, as I said before, of Big Squid could easily be divided into Squid Bits and this segment. We could be bouncing back and forth all the way through it. So anyway, we're going to go full horseshoe and we're going to look at what Donnie McCaslin said, where he revealed after the song had come out, he, he reported that Bowie told him the song was all about the terrorist group ISIS. And some of the original lyrics Bowie wrote included the lines, I'm not a Christ star, Shia. I'm not a Jew star, Sunni. And if you include the lyrics about executions and women kneeling, one might be convinced that McCaslin is correct. But longtime producer and friend Tony Visconti, who also worked on this album and some, possibly some of Bowie's greatest albums, Uh, He denied this, and, and Bowie's representatives denied this immediately, but maybe Donnie wasn't entirely incorrect. There's a possibility that when Bowie said this is about Isis, he wasn't talking about the terrorist group. Maybe he was singing about the ancient Egyptian goddess Isis, who for many centuries was so popular, she not only rose to a higher standing in Egypt, but she was also assimilated into Greek and Roman religion. Isis was a friend of sinners, slaves, artisans, and the downtrodden, but she's also known as the goddess of rebirth and reincarnations, and therefore seen as a protector of the dead. It was through the Book of the Dead that Isis helped protect the deceased, providing nourishment, and allowing them to travel anywhere in the underworld. Isis was also the mother and protector of Imseti, who in turn was one of the four sons of Horus. The four sons were essentially the personifications of the four canopic jars that accompanied mummified bodies into the next world. So Isis protected Imseti, who in turn was the protector of the liver, and as we know, Bowie died of liver cancer. So, when McCaslin says that he believed the song to be about ISIS, maybe he was correct. He was just thinking about the wrong ISIS. So, there's something for us to mull over. All right, we're getting right to the end of uh, this podcast. There are so many thoughts and interpretations of this out there that this song by itself... uh, once again, as I said earlier, it could have been a 15-part season all by itself, and I still wouldn't have covered all the thoughts. What I've tried to do is reveal some of the thoughts that may have gone into creating this song, and now it is up to you to think about this, and you decide on what it all means. As I said earlier, there is a lot of nonsense and fun in the lyrics, which means it could mean anything. So if you take the time to interpret in your way, that makes the song also personal to you. Bear in mind when I'm saying that Bowie is having fun with us with these lyrics and and saying that there is a, a sense of the absurd, it's obvious that the song also means a lot to him. Uh, it's, it's not only giving us flashes of what might be going through his personal life. It's also, in the film clip, got a, a very small moment which feels like uh, a beautiful passing on to his son Duncan Jones the director of the movie Moon and if if you watch the film clip closely at the very start you can see a smiley face badge on the space suit of the astronaut and it and it looks like the the face that references Gertie in Jones's film so Once again, as I'm saying, there is a a sense of absurdity and fun and and mischievousness with this, but also there is a shout out, a little message to his son, and maybe there is a passing on. Maybe there is an aspect of it that when he rises up and moves aside and someone takes that spot, maybe, maybe he's referencing his own son. But that's just something to think about while taking in all of the emotions that go into this whole track. I was uh, listening to this wonderful podcast uh, called You Must Remember This, and specifically the season Charles Manson's Hollywood. And right at the end, there was an interview with John Lennon after Manson had been taken to prison. And he admitted that while the Beatles took their position as influences on the youth seriously, they also used to write stuff that meant absolutely nothing just to have some fun because they knew people were going to be digging into their lyrics to find hidden meaning. Manson thought Helter Skelter was full of hidden meanings, uh, but when you dig into the song, it's, uh, yeah, sure, it's a metaphor, but it its starting point really was Paul McCartney writing about a fairground attraction, and also trying to write a song that was a raucous response to critics that said he only wrote ballads. So so Bowie was quite aware from the people out there that they would pore over these lyrics. So he's given us something to have fun with and ponder, and that's why I don't think you want to get too, too serious when you're looking into these things, even though I have just spent <laughs> weeks working on this uh, podcast because, uh, you know, there's just a lot to... Uh, get into. But it, but it's also part of the fun. Uh, if you'd like to do more reading about this song, there are numerous Reddit threads and sites online where people write some thought-provoking ideas and sometimes write stuff that makes me think I don't think, overthink at all. Like, it makes me feel really good. <laughs> uh, but in particular, for this episode, I found some really interesting stuff by a Jude... Rogers' article that was written for The Guardian, and also uh, a big fan of Chris O'Leary's Ashes to Ashes. I don't always agree on Chris's take on some of Bowie's songs and lyrics, uh, and probably disagree uh, quite vehemently with some, but uh, that's not detracting from the book. That's, you know, that's part of interpretation, and I think the book is fantastic and worth reading as he has done a brilliant job of covering every song by David Bowie. My favourite book, though. And once again, I have some uh, disagreements with this, but I still love it so much. The Complete David Bowie by Nicholas Pegg, which I have bought over and over throughout the years. And every time he updates it with new songs and information, I buy the next copy. Uh, But alas, I'm guessing we won't be getting too many updates from here on in, but uh, one can only hope. But I haven't haven't, uh, told you what I thought of the song. So let's finish on our last segment, the segment, I spend too much time alone thought. That's right. This is where I have spent so much time by myself. And then I, uh, I I finally come to some sort of conclusion. And something that's important to remember with this song and album is that Bowie didn't intend for it to be his last album. He was already thinking about a new play once Lazarus was finished. And that this album was conceived as a wilder and funnier version of his album, Heathen. Heathen is the perfect example of an album that is misinterpreted with people thinking it's Bowie's post-September 11 album. But ironically, most of that album was complete before September 11 occurred. But he tapped into a universal angst that was brought to a head after the terrible events of that day. Another song, uh, Bowie's Heroes, is considered to be an anthem for bravery against the odds. But often people miss that the title is in quotation marks, which gives it a sense of irony that I think is often missed. And in later years, I I, kind of feel like Bowie discarded that as well. You know, I think the audience believed it was this anthem and like it's written as an anthem but i think audiences just kind of believe that it was a- about this this amazing bravery and in the end i think he started performing it with that in mind as well it was like the audience told them what they wanted the song to be but go back and watch early clips and you can see it's 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 very it's very minimal he 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 almost speaks the words it's 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 a very different performance to where it uh, ends up evolving while Bowie began chemotherapy in late 2014 the song and the album were written as possibly going to be his last album but he hoped that it wouldn't be and he had ups and downs with his health in the lead up and so if if you kind of take all of that in the back of your head and you listen to Black star, I think that's where I find it very funny in a in a mischievous way uh I think he's having real fun with us, and I think he's putting a lot out there. And I've read so much on this song alone, everything from occult readings into the song to, you know, some people saying that Bowie's declaring he's the original Gnostic God, the one that was blind and demented. I think the song is full of sleights of hand, and... If you take into account what Chris, uh, Chris O'Leary says in his book Ashes to Ashes, if anything, the album's more of a hedging of bets. And once again, I, that kind of justifies how I, I, I'm convinced that there's a lot of mischief at play here. So what does Black Star mean to me? Well, I've gone through many variations on on what I think uh, since I first saw the clip and heard the song. I feel like I had an initial response uh, that was just based on the video, and then there was the thoughts I had when I bought the album on the day of his birthday, and uh, you know I had like three days of listening to that album before the terrible news that he died came in on the Monday. I listened to the al- I bought the album on a Friday morning, and then listened to it for the whole weekend, and then it was Monday. Uh, Getting close tonight when the news came through, so I've had a, a wide range of emotions on on what I think it is, and then you have to take into account what what I thought it meant afterwards, and then as the years pass, different takes on what it all means. So I can't tell you definitively what I believe because I'm a different version of me at any given point when I think about this song. And with every experience you embrace, you you almost change imperceptibly. And I am a very different me to the one who first heard this song. You know, in recent times, I've experienced success and failure, felt indestructible and on the verge of evaporation. In recent times here in Australia, we've endured the fires that burned out of control at the end of 2019. And at this point, when I'm recording this, We are dealing with the COVID-19 virus and I have been alone in this apartment in Surrey Hills for the past six weeks. So I feel like I should give you that information uh, so you can keep that in mind when I tell you what the song means to me right now. This song is about how ideas are important and if you engage with them, you can transcend the mundane In the clip, Bowie portrays the characters Button Eyes, the Preacher, and the Trickster. And to me, this is the Holy Trinity that makes up Bowie. He shows us through his first character, Major Tom, that the original idea still holds an attraction through the jeweled encrusted skull. A new generation will find these ideas, they'll take them, they'll worship them, and in turn, turn them into something new. Whatever that new idea is, we might see it as horrible or scary, but in the end, it too will evolve into something new and wondrous. On the day he died, someone took his place, and the world continued to evolve. He's done all he can, and now it's time for him to step aside for something new, something bold, to take the place. He continuously tells us that he's not a gangster, or a pop star, or a marvel star, or a wandering star. He's a black star, a symbol. David Robert Jones, born January 8th, 1947, died January 10th, 2016. But David Bowie lives on, a modern-day mythology that continues to inspire and dazzle us for the days to come. I think he's saying that he's become an idea, and we are to take that idea and do what we want to do with it, but we have to evolve as well, and maybe we too can go on to achieve some sort of greatness. Then again, it might mean nothing, and I've overthought the whole shebang. But either way, if you're going to overthink something, why not overthink art, right? And to be honest, I've had a lot of fun just thinking about this song. Thank you very much for listening. I look forward to your company for our next episode in Season 2 of Big Squid Black Star. Until then...